All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Napa. So glad you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, we'd like to extend to you a very special welcome. We're glad you're here. And, you know, one of the things that is uh, so important to us is the, the teaching of the Word of God. And that's, that's one of the, the big reasons that we gather on Sunday morning. We come together to enjoy fellowship one with another, to praise God corporately through song, and then also to uh, sit under the teaching of His Word and to learn more about our God and what delights His heart, how we can serve Him, and to be challenged by His Word. And that's a big part of what we do here. And we're working our way through the book of Romans right now. It's a New Testament book. And we'll be turning there in just a moment. But before we do, I have a number of announcements um, I need to cover. And I'll, so I'll try to move through rather quickly. So we have uh, our bridge recovery ministry, uh, restoration ministry that is getting ready to launch. We have the house. We have our, our uh, residential managers who have uh, just moved here from Monterey, California yesterday. So they're here. They're in the house. Yeah. Praise the Lord. And so you'll be, you'll be meeting those guys uh, uh, very soon. And wanted to also mention that there are some t-shirts out in the foyer for sale and this is just one of the ways in which we're trying to get the the name and our presence out into the community and so uh, really nice t-shirts and I would encourage you to to buy one and support that thing with pride so we can get this ministry out there okay uh, on, a, on a much sadder note I will say um, there's a couple Rick and Randy LeMay um, you may know them but they had uh, recently got married here, and then uh, Rick, um, Randy's husband, suddenly passed away a couple of weeks ago, and so that's a, a really uh, grievous deal. And so his funeral is going to be Monday, and so everyone is uh, invited to come. Is it? It's 11 a.m. Is that right? Okay, so it'll be here 11 a.m. There will be uh, food afterwards. So we would encourage the body to, to come out if you can. I know Monday uh, early afternoon might be a hard time to, to pull that off, but if you can come and, and support our sister Randy, we would certainly appreciate that and the rest of the family as well. And uh, that kind of leads me to the next, uh, the next announcement. We have this Dealing with Grief conference that's going to be happening at our church November 23rd. That's uh, 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. here at the church. And there will be uh, some live guest speakers. There will be some videos that will be playing. Uh, food will be provided. But this is for people who are going through grief or people who want to know how to better serve other people who may be going through some sort of grief. And there are many different kinds of tragedies that strike. This is a fallen world that we live in. And we've talked about that a lot even as we've been in Romans. And I think in a lot of ways we're all affected by it. And so uh, we want to be able to minister to you and also be able to equip you to minister to other people. So please mark your calendars. That's November 23rd, 9.30 to 2 p.m. So that's next weekend. Uh, mark your calendars. Christmas dinner um, will be happening December 14th. And so that's a Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it'll be here at the church. We're going to be having it in the sanctuary this year. And there's also going to be a children's ministry event happening at the same time. So that'll sort of be the child care happening. Uh, but it's also going to be a real sweet event. Uh, Dan and Michaela Bernard have been doing a wonderful job hosting uh, children's ministry events, so on and so forth. So more details to come, but mark your calendar. That's going to be December 14th. 
Today, after the service, we're going to be having that hospitality, greeter, usher, security meeting that I've, I've been telling you about. And this is, I, I kind of misunderstood what it is, but it, this is for the, the purpose of helping everyone understand the security protocol. So if you're in any of those ministries, uh, we want everybody to be on the same page. We live in a, a day and age where, unfortunately, that's very necessary in, in churches that uh, we have a, a good, solid security protocol in place and that everyone understands the standards that are set. And so that's going to be today after the service. So if, uh, if you're currently in those ministries, we're asking you to participate. If you would like to be and have some understanding of how all that works, please come. There will be food provided as well. And that's in the youth room after the service today. And one other thing, I just want to mention this, and I want to you know, mention it quickly. Uh, we don't talk an awful lot about um, giving, about financial things here at the church, in part because, uh, you know, we'll be honest, a lot of churches over the years have really abused people financially. You hear horror stories about that, and so we kind of shy away from it. And, you know, the Scriptures do speak to uh, how Christians ought to conduct themselves financially and then also giving to the Lord, monetarily giving to the local church. That's all there, and we, we address those things when they come up in the Scriptures. And that's generally our approach. We feel like that's the safe way to handle it. As we're teaching through the Word, we address it at the pace that God addresses it in His Word. Amen? And so, uh, we, we, you know, I appreciate that we don't pass a collection plate because we don't want people to feel uh, pressure when they come in here. We don't want people to, to get the idea that that's what we're all about. And you hear that oftentimes, that that's all churches want is your money. And so, you know, we, we try to be very sensitive to that. And, you know, as a result, we, don't, we shy away from it quite a bit. In fact, I don't think I have even really mentioned um, finances since last January when we had our financial yearly meeting, and I did a little teaching on it as well. And so the end of the year is coming up, and we're uh, the, the Board of Elders setting the budget for the coming year. So these are things that we're, we're just looking at. And um, the trend over this last year has been roughly we've been um, behind about $4,000 a month in giving. Uh, so that's just kind of been the trend. And so I just want you guys to be aware of that, those of you who give to the church. And I'm not necessarily talking to people who are just here for the first time or have recently started coming. But if you feel like this is your your church and your home and, and you want to give to the cause, give to the work of the Lord here and, and support the local church, I just want you to kind of be aware of, of kind of how the, how the trend of giving has been. And it's been kind of like that for the last couple years, but this last year, in particular, and so you know, we're wanting to we're wanting to storm the gates and do some awesome things for for uh, the Lord and for His kingdom. And um, obviously, it, it does require uh, money, uh, oftentimes uh, investing in ministries and missionaries and and different things. And so, if you would if you would like to participate with us and give, there is a box in the back, and um, you're you're able to. That's between you and the Lord. You know, if you want to give and how much you want to give. That's totally between you and him. That's not my place to tell you what that is. But I just wanted you to be aware kind of what the, the state of things are. And if you want to talk to me or um, any of the elders about these things, feel free to do so after the service. We'll answer any questions that we can. And so enough of that. All right. Uh, open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5.
working our way through this glorious book, and it has, it's been a lot of fun for me. It's, it's a masterpiece, as I said many times over, and we'll continue to say a gospel masterpiece. And uh, today we are in chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the benefits of our justification, those things that have been secured for us by Christ Jesus, the blessings that we enjoy as sons and daughters of God now that we have been justified, we've been declared innocent, now that we have been invited into the family of God, there are many blessings that are ours. And then he's going to go on to talk about how that happened. How could this be? How was it accomplished? And so this chapter, I would say, is broken into two sections, and that's the way we're going to approach it. The first 11 verses, the benefits of our justification, and then 12 through 23, I think, 21, um, is the basis of our justification. How was it accomplished? And so allow me to pray for us, and we will dig in. Father, we love you, and we praise you. We praise your holy name. We worship you collectively as a family of believers, as the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you saved us. You saved us from wrath. You saved us from sin. You saved us from death, from eternal separation, God, from you. And we worship you, Father. We thank you, God. That is the sacrifice that you are pleased with, thanksgiving. And so we offer that up to you afresh. And we pray, God, that you be glorified as we seek you in your word. I pray that truly you would teach us. Meet us here today, Father, by your Spirit. Would you open your word to us, God? Help us to understand just how serious this is and just how desperately we need you and how much we need your word, God. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified and worshiped. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, the benefits and the basis of justification, all of the wonderful blessings that have been secured for us in Christ Jesus. And I, I want you to just hold on to that word, secured. It's been bought. It's been purchased. It's been given to us. And it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And we don't lose these things. They are ours. We didn't earn them. We didn't buy them. It's all God's grace. It was accomplished for us. And, you know, I believe that we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace. It's not a matter of your salvation is given to you, it's a free gift, but now you've got to hold on to it with all your might. It doesn't work that way. So many of these wonderful blessings that have been given to us freely in Jesus are ours to enjoy forevermore. And uh, so with that, we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul has spent all of chapter 4 making it very clear that our justification being made right with God, declared innocent in His sight, comes by faith. And who was the, the prime example of that given to us? In chapter 4, Abraham, Father Abraham, faithful Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And we talked about the different things that Abraham did 
that were so wonderful, the, the amazing faith that he exhibited in very difficult situations. And because he believed God, because he exercised faith in God, he was counted as righteous before God. And so such is the case for us. When we believe God, when we take Him at His Word, when we put our faith in Him, our faith in the Gospel, the finished work of the cross on our behalf, we believe on His Son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. We put our trust in Him for salvation. We are justified. And I just want to remind you again, that word justified, it is to say just as if I had never sinned at all. There is some difference between justification and forgiveness. We can forgive people, and sometimes forgiveness is a daily thing. When we have been hurt so badly, we have to decide every day that we're going to forgive all over again. I mean, can anyone relate with that in here? Justification is different. It's gone. The record of debt is erased. And so for God, it's not a matter of I've got to forgive again and again and again. It's done, never to be remembered again, washed away by the blood of our Jesus, justified, declared righteous as though I had never sinned at all. That's amazing, isn't it? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that is ours in Christ Jesus. He has done that for us. And so what are some of the benefits thereof now that we are justified, now that we are beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God? What are some of the wonderful benefits that we enjoy? What are some of the blessings of being a Christian? And the first here is that we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is multifaceted. I would say first and foremost, it speaks to the fact that we now are at peace with God. We were enemies of God. The Scriptures have made that very clear. We were dead in our trespass and sin. We were children of wrath. We were under God's wrath by nature. We were not lovers of God. We were not seeking after God. No one does good. No, not one. That's who we were. We were enemies. But now that we've been justified, we have peace with God. It is no longer a matter of two warring parties. We are at peace. He is our loving Heavenly Father. And we enjoy that rest. And I would say we have the peace of God. The peace of God. Before Christ, my life, it was a lot of uncertainty, instability, anxiety, fear, even torment. Anybody relate with that? But now I have the peace of God. Because I have peace with God, I have a Heavenly Father that loves me. He leads me. He protects me. He provides for me. And I am safe in His arms. I have the peace of God and I have peace with God. And that is one of the most wonderful benefits that we enjoy in Christ. He secured that for us. We were enemies, but now we are beloved sons and daughters and we have peace with God. Do you have peace in your life? Do you have peace? Many of us have known unrest and everything else that comes with that, but it's wonderful to be able to rest in the Father, to rest in Him. He goes on to say that we have access. We have access to the Father. I've talked about this before. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was this, as you go out, there were several courts and it became more and more exclusive as you got into the center of the temple precinct, the temple mountain. There was a center area where nobody but the high priest could come but one time a year. And it was a very frightening place to go, the Holy of Holies. 
It was a place of fear and trembling. It was very exclusive. And there was something that separated that space from the outside. You had to go through something known as the veil. The, the temple veil. And it was very large. It was very tall. It was very thick. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, what happened? Something very supernatural, very extraordinary happened. Remember? That, tail, uh, that veil was torn. That veil was torn in two. And what that... What that represents is that we now have access to the Father. We can come into His presence. And the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that we can come into His presence boldly. We can come into the throne room boldly. That has been made available to us through Christ. You know, and within that temple precinct, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they were only allowed to go so far. And there was this what was referred to as the middle wall of separation. Ephesians talks about that. It's been broken down. There was a sign there that let the Gentiles know that if you come past this point, you will be killed on the spot. It was such a serious issue. Rome had taken away the Jews' right to capital punishment, but they actually allowed them this one, uh, one situation where they could kill someone on the spot for, for passing this point. That's how serious it was. That's all been broken down. We have access to the Father. You can come to Him at any time. You have access to the Father Monday through Sunday. You have access to the Father at any point throughout your day. You have access to the Father whether you're driving on the street, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're at school. We have access to the Father. We can come to Him with our cares. We've been told that we can cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. We can come to Him in time of need. We can come to Him in time of doubt. We can come to Him in time of frustration. We can come to Him with thanksgiving and joy. We can come to the Father and that has been secured for us through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father because of Him. I remember a time in my life where I didn't have that access. It was a, it was a fearful thing to even think about God. I tried to put it out of my mind if at all possible. And it was inescapable because I knew, I just knew that there was a God to whom I would have to give an account. And try as I may to block that out, I could not escape it. But how glorious was it the day when I knew that I didn't have to try to escape that or block my ears or, or anything of the sort. I could go into His presence with joy. And we're told that it's by grace, the grace in which we stand. And I would say that speaks to our positional security we stand in this place jesus has accomplished it for us we have a right standing with god that does not change we're secure in it that is our position and that is by grace and that is a sweet place to be that does not change you know the way that i feel changes day by day how about you and i have good days and i have bad days but the reality is God doesn't change. And what God has done has not changed. And the grace that has been given to me does not change. And I am standing on His promises and I'm standing in His love and I'm standing by grace. And again, that has been accomplished for us by who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus did that for us. And we're told that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. We have a future. And we have a hope. That word hope in the Bible, it, it, for the Christian, it means a confident expectation. 
It isn't like a, I hope I get in or I wish, right? It's not wishful thinking. Now, other religions, that's how it is. Hope for them is, I hope that on that day my good deeds outweighed my bad. I hope on that day maybe the deity to whom they serve might be merciful to them. But our hope is a confident expectation. And who is our confidence in? Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so we rejoice in this. You know, I didn't rejoice about my future at one point in time, but now I rejoice in the hope that is mine. The glory of God. This is something that we seldom think about. But what does it mean to share the glory of God? To rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, this is something that people are living for. Glory. It's something that I think everybody wants. And for most people, it's kind of the little day-to-day things. We want recognition. We want a pat on the back. We want people to see what we're doing and we want to get some recognition for it, right? But then you see people who have monumental glory. They win the Olympics. They get the golden medal or, or there are so many of these bigger things that they accomplish and they have that moment. The stadium is cheering for them and chanting their name. And you have that panoramic moment where the camera is going around them and they're just receiving glory, right? And you know, in that it fades. It's momentary. Then it's ne- on to the next thing. You're only as good as your last win, right? But we're told that one day we are going to share in the glory of God forever. Imagine that. That, that kind of glorious moment uh, when you're on cloud nine, but that's the way it's going to be in eternity forever, and it will not change. It won't be just as good as your last win or your last performance. It will never fade because it's the glory of God the glory of God that will never fade. And we're going to share in that. And that's our hope. That's our future. We rejoice when we think about our future. A lot of people around the world, they don't have that same joy. To them, it's torment. To them, it's dread. Even here in our own community, in our families, they don't have that hope of rejoicing. But we do. And that's been secured for us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, verse 3 says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So now we glory in tribulation. That's an that's a odd thing to think that, that we boast. That's what the word glory means. It literally means, the word is neck. And the idea is that you, you have your head up high. You boast. You glory in tribulation. And the, the word tribulation, it means press. Uh, oftentimes it would refer to um, olives being pressed and the, the olive oil that, that comes forth. But uh, more specifically, the word comes from a Latin word, tribulum, which is speaking of a very large wooden implement with uh, metal teeth in it that was used to separate wheat and chaff, separate the two, and it brings out the good stuff, the wheat, and it discards the chaff, right? And so that's tribulation. That's what God is doing in the life of a Christian. And how is it that we glory in that? Because God uses it for good. God, now that we are in Him, is even able to take the challenging things, the hard things in our life, and use it for good. To make us better. To make us more like Jesus. To bring glory to His name. Now, the world doesn't have that kind of hope. The world doesn't have that. Devastation is just that. Hard times is just that. Conflict 
And tribulation is just that. But we glory in tribulation knowing that God is using it for our good and for His glory. That is another benefit of justification. Nothing is wasted with the Father. Nothing is wasted with God. Amen? Amen. We're sanctified. That word sanctified is used in a couple different ways. But one is it's a progressive work of God. We're justified, we're innocent, we're declared righteous, but God is also in the process of making us more and more into the image of His Son. It's a process. And we're told here that God uses tribulation to produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. So perseverance here, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's a funny Greek word. It's hupomone. I don't know if you ever heard that, but my pastor in South Carolina used to call it dancing the hoopamone. And it means to, to bear up underneath an unbearable weight. Not to succumb to it, not to be crushed by it, not to try to escape from it, but to allow it to have its, its work, its sanctifying work. And James chapter 1 talks about that very thing. You know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience and let that patience have its perfect work in you. And so that's the idea here. And so we persevere. Uh, we understand that difficulties in our life, God may even send those into our lives to accomplish something in us. So we glory in that. We persevere. We don't try to circumvent it or escape it. We trust that God will keep us in the midst of it and use it for, for our good. But we persevere. And that produces character. The word character here is, it literally means approved character. You know, what is character? It's who you are when nobody is looking. It's what you do when there's no one around to see it. It's what you're thinking. You know, nobody knows what you're thinking except God Himself oftentimes. And, you know, what's really going on in there? And that's character. Proven character, approved character. God uses tribulation and perseverance to produce perseverance, to produce character, and all this to produce hope, that confident expectation, that confident trust in the Father. And then it says, hope does not disappoint. This hope will not disappoint. You will not be let down. The word disappoint means to be ashamed. You're not going to be ashamed for having put your trust in God. You'll never be put to shame for having put your hope in Him. Hope will not disappoint. And I think that speaks of assurance. We have assurance in, in the Lord that we will not be put to shame. We will not be let down. He will not fail us. He will hold us to the very end. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have that blessed assurance. We have the love of God. We have the love of God. This is one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. Um, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God has set His affection on us. Is that amazing? That's amazing. God does that. Why? Because God is love. God is love. And God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. So now we're no longer at war. We have peace with God and we have the love of God. God's love has been set on us and that doesn't change. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But we have the love of God and that, that's one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life is entering into a loving relationship with Him here and now. 
A lot of people, I don't think, get that. Um, some people, they, they are glad to have their sins forgiven and they're glad to know that they won't be going to hell and now they're just ready to go, go to heaven, right? Let's just get this thing over with. Take me home. But, you know, part of the adventure of the Christian life is walking here in this, on this earth and enjoying the love of the Father here and now. That is the Christian faith. It is the love of God. It's enjoying the love of the Father here and now, having a relationship with Him. You know, the Bible talks about a guy named Enoch in Genesis. It says that Enoch walked with God. And Hebrews adds to that. It says that he walked with God and he pleased God. He's one of the only, one of two people in the Bible who didn't die. He was just taken up into heaven. Evidently, he enjoyed some very special communion with the Father. He walked with God and pleased God, and then he was no more. God took him. God took him. That's an amazing thing to consider, but that's what it's all about. Are we walking in the love of God? Are we enjoying the love of God? Jude talks about that very thing. He says, Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that is not to say that you have to earn it or you have to you could lose it, but it's to say keep yourself under the spout where the blessings pour out. Right? We we have relationships in this room and we know that there are things that we can do to to hinder those relationships. Uh, there are, are we get into arguments. I mean, you fill in the blank. There are so many things that we can do. Relationships can be such a complex thing. But we're told that with God, we ought to cultivate that. Spend time with Him. Seek Him. Give Him thanks. Praise Him. Serve Him. Worship Him. Spend time just meditating on His love. And His love was demonstrated to us most vividly at the cross where He gave His Son for us. And we're told we have the Holy Spirit. God's love was poured out into our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now this, is a, this could be a whole other study on its own. All the, the wonderful benefits that we enjoy because we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. But I think in large part here, this speaks to the fact that we, we have a guarantee. Sometimes that, that uh, word is used to speak of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. It's a done deal. That is God's promise to us that He is going to bring us all the way home one day. And He said, I'll put my money down on it right now. This is the down payment. This is the guarantee. This is the seal of your redemption. I'm giving my Holy Spirit to indwell you, and He will see you through to the end. He will be our comforter. He will be our counselor. He will lead. He will guide. He will convict. He will sanctify. And all of that has been given to us. Why? How? Because of Jesus Christ. That has been given to us because of what He has done. Now Paul's going to go on to expound upon the depth of this love. Just how significant this love is that is ours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength and due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. You hear me quote it frequently. So when we were without strength, that is to say when we were incapable, when we were without the ability, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave His life. And Jesus says, I think in John 13, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down His life for His friends. 
And so that was the ultimate sacrifice, and Jesus made it. Jesus did that for who? For us, for the ungodly. He did it for people who were not deserving. And then Paul kind of makes this distinction here. He says, you know, it would be rare for someone to die for a righteous person. They might even begin to consider dying for a good person. And it's kind of like, what is the distinction there? And I've, I've heard it said that you can do the right thing for all the wrong reasons. You can be awfully right and very unloving. You look at the Pharisees. I think they were a classic example of that. And so right or righteous doesn't necessarily mean good. But here's the thing. We were neither of those. Neither righteous, neither right, nor good. And yet, God sent His Son to die for us. Jesus died for us when we were without the ability, when we were helpless, hopeless, and ungodly people. Christ died. And you know, that's unconditional love. That is the electing love of God. God chose to put His love on us. You know, we... We don't know that love very well, I don't think. I think it's hard for us to receive that kind of love. I think it's hard for us to give that kind of love. Human love can be so much more fickle than that. You know what I mean? Human love is like, I love you until you hurt me. I love you until you let me down. Now maybe I don't love you so much. Maybe I'm going to be a little more guarded. Maybe I'm going to be a little more careful. But not so with God. It was absolutely sacrificial. It came at His expense. It was for ungodly, undeserving people, and that does not change. That is the unconditional, sacrificial love of God that has been given to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the most wonderful benefits of justification is that we enjoy that level of love. Amen? Amen. Well, verse 9, it says, "...much more then, having now been justified by His blood..." We shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we've been justified, how? By His blood. And I feel it's important to make this point. Because the scripture is very clear that we have been saved by uh, we've been saved from something we've been saved from the wrath of God, and we've been saved by something, and that was by the blood of Jesus. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took the penalty that was ours that we we had to pay, and that that's called the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's a very fancy way of saying that He took our place. He died in our place. He paid the price that we we're supposed to pay. That's important. I point this out because there are a lot of even Christian denominations out there who would, who would uh, have you to believe otherwise. They, they, they want to erase all of that. And I've talked about this before. You know that song, In Christ Alone? It's a wonderful song. And it says, Upon the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, there was a denomination that didn't want to have that in their hymn book. And so they approached the people that wrote that song and asked if they would change the wording to upon the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Why? Because they don't want to believe in a God of wrath and they don't want to believe that Jesus had to die to appease that God's wrath. But the Scriptures are crystal clear and we have to understand that. This is serious business. 
helps us to really appreciate the gift of grace when we understand to whom we had to give an account. Amen? So we don't want to erase that. We don't want to soften that. We will, and, you know, that's, that's a prayer that I, I, you know, I will pray. It's a scary prayer to pray, but, uh, you know, Lord, strike fear into my heart. You know, I want to have a holy and a healthy reverence of God. I want to be so aware of what I've been saved from that it drives me to a place of worship and thanksgiving and obedience and worship. And so uh, the Scriptures are clear and we don't want to erase that. We don't want to try to uh, wish it away or act like it's not there. We want to praise God that He saved us from it. He saved us from His wrath. God saved us from Himself, from His holy wrath and justice. And we've talked about that already at length says that we've been reconciled by His death. That is, we've been restored back into a right standing with God. That's another one of those words that we'll hear repeatedly. I talked about a few of those last week. Imputed, reckoned, justified, faith, redemption. I'll add to that reconciliation. You know, when Adam and Eve, they, they walked in the garden with God, they were at peace with God, but then that fellowship was broken when they chose to rebel against God's command and to eat the fruit that was forbidden. That fellowship was broken. And that has continued on throughout the lineage of humanity. We're going to talk about that here moving on in the next section. But now we've been reconciled. Jesus is in the business of making all things new. He's restoring things back to the way that they were supposed to be. One soul at a time. Amen? And so we are being reconciled back to the Father. We are being brought back into a place of love and fellowship with Him. And that has happened by His death. And then it goes on to say, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. Saved by His life. You know, He rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And Hebrews tells us now He ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and as our great high priest, He intercedes on our behalf. He's praying for us. Is that amazing? The life of Christ. We don't worship a dead Savior. He's a living Savior. He's a living God. And He's still alive at the right hand of the Father, and He is ministering on our behalf before the throne as our great high priest. That is amazing. And so it continues on. Even now, we're saved by His death and He's still at work as a living Savior. Amen? And I think there's something even deeper here. And that is, if God was for us when we were enemies and we were reconciled by Jesus' death, how much more now that we are beloved sons and daughters and Jesus ever lives to make intercession on our behalf is God for us. God is for us. If He was for us when we were against Him, how much more now that we are saved, redeemed, and reconciled and we are worshipers of the living God. That's something to praise God for. That's something to rejoice in. And he says we do just that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received this reconciliation. We rejoice. We are to be a people above all else who rejoice. Who demonstrate joy. It's not always the case. Um, so often, I think, within the church... We don't always look like a very joyful people, do we? But we ought to. We ought to be a people of rejoicing. We have every right to be, every reason to be. And now we're going to talk about why that is. I'm going to move a little more quickly through this uh, second portion of the chapter. 
Um, because Paul's essentially saying one thing and he's going to say it over and over and over again. And, and so we'll move rather quickly. But we've talked about the blessings of our justification. There are many. Amen. Glorious blessings. And now we're going to talk about the basis. How can these things be ours? And here's, here's essentially the, the, the question that Paul is answering. And maybe you've, uh, you've heard people say, how can one man, speaking of Jesus, possibly save a, the whole world from their sins? How can that be? And in short, the same way that one man condemned the whole world. We talked about the fact that Adam's sin has resulted in the condemnation and separation of the whole human race from God. Well, God is going to reverse that and He's going to do it through His Son. So just as through one man sin entered into the world and death came through one man, Christ Jesus, life will abound to many. That is the point that Paul is making. So the, the blessings of our justification, the benefits of our justification, we have talked about now the basis. How was it accomplished? How was it secured? And it was done through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is the point that Paul is now making. So verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam is introduced here as, this is a fancy theological word. You ready for this? The federal headship of Adam. The federal headship of Adam. That is to say that he is the representative of the human race, of mankind. And his his sin, his, uh, his breaking the command that God gave caused sin to enter into the world now. And this is original sin. You'll hear us talk about this from time to time. It's the idea that when Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the world and it spread to the entire human race, we are conceived and born as sinners. That is our condition. And we're born spiritually dead. We are separated from God. And the whole world is tainted by this. All of humanity, all of human history, that is original sin because of the federal headship of Adam. We're told that death spread to all, all sinned. And this is spiritual death. Uh, Adam and Eve were, were put out of the garden. They were separated from God. This is physical death. Um, you know... The Bible records the first account of death is when God uh, provided animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. And then from that point forward, as you read through Genesis, especially when you look at the, um, the genealogies of the nations, it's death, death, death. And that began at this point. And then there's eternal death. And that is to be eternally separated from God in a state of of dying yet never truly dying. It's, it's, a, it's a place of torment and eternal separation and death. And Adam and Eve ushered that in. And I just want to make this point really quickly. You notice here that Adam is the one who's given the blame. And um, he was certainly there, but the Bible tells us that this whole interaction first happened with Eve and the serpent. And she was deceived and she ate of the fruit. And then we're told that she gave it to her husband and he took and he ate. And then God confronted them. The curse came. But Adam was the one held accountable for this ultimately. You know why? Adam was the head of the home. Adam was the, the man. He was placed in charge. He was to be the protector. 
He knew God's command. He wasn't there when God gave that command. Adam received that command and he passed that command on to Eve, but he did not step in when this situation happened with the serpent. And it seems like he was actually present, but he was kind of withdrawn. He was passive. And that is the sin of, of man, passivity, so often. And it happened. They, they gave in and they rebelled against the command. And Adam is held accountable as the man. And I, I, I just want to affirm that men, we have a charge before the Lord to lead. The men, is, the men are the, the heads of the home, of the family, um, church leadership. God has set it in place that the men are to, to lead. And uh, we've got to take that seriously. Recognize that we've got to give an account for how we lead and the different ways that God has called us to lead. And Adam was held accountable. Eve is not mentioned anywhere in here. Take note of that. All right. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So even though man had not sinned in the likeness of Adam, this is talking about direct violation of a command of God. We're talking about the period of time between Adam and Moses, the giving of the law, death still spread to all men, even though God's law had not yet been given. Now, Adam had been given a law. God spoke directly to him and said, Do not eat of this one tree. And he broke that law. He transgressed against that law that God gave him. Now, the rest of mankind from Adam to Moses didn't have the written law. And so that's the distinction here when it says they sin not according to the sin of Adam, but nevertheless, death still reigned. And that is proof that we are all um, victims, if you will. We all uh, suffer from this sin that spreads, this death that spreads to the whole human race because of the choice that Adam made. Death still dominated. Death still dominates. And then Adam says, or uh, Paul says, speaking of Adam, he is a type of him who was to come. So now, as we move forward, there's going to be this, this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And he says that Adam's actually a type of Christ. And it's really by contrast. And so, again, I just want to remind you, the point he's making here is just as sin and death entered through one man, all of that would be reversed and abundant life would come through another man, Jesus Christ. And so he's going to begin to make this distinction now. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So Paul's making this distinction and he said sin came by Adam's offense. This is important to note. The word offense there literally means trespass. And that is to say he crossed a line. You know, we all sin and there are different kinds of sins. And there are, there are you know, accidental sins. We just blow up or uh, impulsively or something happened we didn't even realize that we had done. But Adam's sin was a, a trespass. He crossed a line that had been drawn in the sand and he knew he was doing it. But we're told that the gift of grace comes by Jesus Christ. The trespass, sin, death, came by Adam's offense, but grace came through Jesus Christ. And this word grace, it's important for us to understand that is God's free gift. 
we merited disfavor. You get that? You get what I'm saying when I say that? We deserved disfavor. It's not that we just didn't deserve good things. We deserved bad things, quite frankly. And God gave us good things. That's grace. And so death came from Adam. Sin came from Adam. But grace came from Jesus Christ. Verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So judgment and condemnation came from one man's offense, Adam, his sin in the garden. But pardon and forgiveness will come upon a multitude of offenses because of what Christ has done. So it's a grand reversal there. Verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So death dominated through Adam, but life overcomes death through Christ. We have abundant life in Him. Adam brought forth death. Jesus brought life. Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So again, Adam's offense equals judgment and condemnation, just in case you didn't get this already. I mean, he's saying it over and over and over. Christ's righteous act brought forth justification. And, you know, when we talk about the righteous act of Christ, uh, it could really probably be summarized in his active obedience and his passive obedience. And active obedience is Jesus' sinless life. The 33 years that he lived here on the earth and he submitted himself to God's ordinances and he was totally innocent and holy in every single way. And then his, what is known as his passive obedience, his death upon the cross, his blood that was shed for us. And that resulted in justification. Adam's disobedience produced a sinful humanity. Christ's obedience produced a redeemed church. And that's what God's in the business of doing right now. God is building His church all around the world as we speak. And so that's why we believe that the church is such a big deal. We love God's church. Jesus died to secure the church. And God is building the church. And so that's what Christ is producing. Adam's sin produced a sinful humanity. Christ's death is producing a redeemed, reconciled church, amen, of which you and I are a part of. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, we're told, did give the law that the offense might abound. That is to say that the spotlight might shine on sin and bring sinners to account. Even though there was no law from Adam to Moses, sin still reigned, death still reigned 
in humanity. But when the law came, when God gave the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that surround that, it became very clear that we're sinners and that we can't keep God's law and that we have to give an account to God for that. But as great as that sin may be, grace is greater. Jesus' work on the cross is greater. And I can't emphasize that enough, guys. Jesus' cross, Jesus' blood, what He has accomplished is greater than our sin. Greater than any sin that you have or ever will commit. There's none greater. And that's why it's such a terrible thing to think that we have to add to grace or to the cross. When you have religions or denominations that say it's Jesus plus what they're saying is, is that the cross was not enough. That that was a good starting point perhaps, but now it's also dependent upon all of these other things that I must add to it. And that's what you're saying is that Jesus, your sacrifice was not good enough. The cross is not powerful enough. The work that God did, that He accomplished in sending His Son was not enough. It's enough. Amen. It's more than enough. It's super abundant. It super abounds. And so where there is... Sin, God's grace is greater. And you need to know that. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. That is ours in Christ Jesus. He did that. The one man, Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ. We have all of these wonderful benefits that we enjoy and it's been secured for us by Him. Through the one man Adam came death and sin, but through Christ Jesus came grace, forgiveness, and all of these wonderful benefits that we enjoy by His justification. So just to kind of recap, I just want to list again for you all of those blessings. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have positional security with God. It's in His grace that we stand we have hope, we have joy, we have sanctification, we have assurance, we have God's love, we have the Holy Spirit, we have salvation from wrath, we have reconciliation to God, we have the ongoing ministry of the living Christ who intercedes on our behalf as the great high priest. All of this has been bought by Jesus, it's been secured by the one man, Jesus Christ, and to Him be the glory in His church. Amen? Amen. Alright, well, we'll close with, uh, with prayer here. Pastor Bill, you got a song for us? Okay. Father, we love You, and we can't thank You enough for securing all of this for us. When we were not deserving, we didn't deserve any of this. We were ungodly people seeking to build our own kingdom and secure our own safety and security. And uh, You, God, initiated this whole thing, Lord. You loved us first. And we thank You for the justification that we have enjoyed as believers in Jesus, that we've been made right with You and that our, our sin debt has been canceled. It's gone. Thank You for all of these wonderful blessings that we enjoy and thank You, Lord, that we enjoy it because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray for anyone in this room, Father, who doesn't know that. Anyone in this room who has not had their sins forgiven. Anyone who has not uh, experienced this justification that comes only through You, I pray, God, that You would speak to their hearts here and now.